Welcome to Footnotes and Witness. My name is Deborah J. McKenzie, and this is the podcast where we study the Bible to see Jesus rightly and find him in our own story. Let us be faithful witnesses to his character and glory. So we've been talking about poetical literature in the Bible, the poetry, the things that we feel are a little scary. Sometimes they're a little intimidating because it's all about imagery and metaphors. But today we're going to talk about two very specific types of poetry, the Psalms and wisdom literature. We're going to look at how to read these books, and then we're going to see how these books reflect God's character. And then last, how they point to the gospel. Now, you might be saying that you're afraid to read poetry, that you're not qualified to read poetry, but I'm guessing that you've never been afraid to read the Psalms. In fact, you probably have some form of the Psalms up in your bathroom on shiplap, maybe from a sign from Hobby Lobby, or stick it in your pocket on some kind of keychain or cute phone cover. There are lots of Psalms that we're pretty familiar with, like Psalms 23, The Lord is my shepherd. He restores my soul. Psalm 91. He's my refuge and my fortress, my God in whom I trust. And Psalm 139, which is at like every single woman's luncheon and conference. I praise you for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works. My soul knows it very well. We're not afraid of the Psalms because we think of them like songs, which they are. A lot of them were meant to be sung on the way to the temple or to be sung at home with families. So they shouldn't induce fear. And this is the way you need to look at all poetry. Don't be afraid of it. Just find the right way to read it. So there are great little prayers that we, like I said, stick in our pockets and put on shiplap. But when we reduce the Psalms to just that, we miss out on so much more. Now, I'm going to link to two short videos in the show notes. Tim Mackey from the Bible Project can explain the structure and the context of the book of Psalms way better than I can. So go watch them. You can pause this right now and watch them or watch them later, but definitely watch them. It helps give you the context for what the Psalms are. They're this beautiful literary temple given to the people in exile and what we use today like a prayer book for how to be in God's presence. It tells the story of God and reminds us of his son, the Christ, the promise that came and the eternity that is still to come. So how do we read it? There are two basic types of Psalms, laments and praise. Most Psalms are pretty easy to distinguish between the two. Laments tell us complaining, I guess, They also say things like, smite my enemies for they're after me. (laughs) There's also, I'm really angry with you. And why would you forsake me, God? Why have you turned from me? Where are you? And then there's the Psalms of praise. You're wonderful. I am fearfully and wonderfully made and I praise your name. So what this tells us is that it's okay to tell God your frustrations and complaints. Any relationship where the only time you talk is where nothing is wrong, will be a shallow one indeed. That's not a relationship worth having. One where you tell each other your problems. Those are the most fulfilling relationships where you feel like that person knows you. And this is how we get to know God and be in his presence. 
by telling him what's going on, singing our own songs of lament. Now, you'll notice whenever you look at that Tim Mackey video or read through the Psalms, there's 150 of them. There are a lot more laments at the beginning than there are at the end. And that kind of shows us that as this relationship grows and as you pray through your life with God, you will be able to praise more easily and more readily even through your laments because you've spent that time being in relationship with God. It tells us where to give credit and praise when things are going well. The Psalms of praise help us see what we need to give credit to God for. I know that we know we need to give God credit for everything. Of course we know that. That's the right answer. But sometimes we forget to thank him for the trees, for the rocks, for the roof over our heads, for the very breath that we woke up with. Songs of praise, psalms of praise, help us see that God is worthy to be praised of all things, even if they're small. So how we use the book of Psalms, how we actually just read it, is like a prayer book. King David and the other authors of the Psalms help us see how to pray, how to go to God and be in his presence, how to take our complaints and our praises, our frustrations and our adorations to him, and kind of be in relationship with him. So if that's how we read it, how do we see God's character reflected in it? So there are many Psalms that were written out of confession, where David messed up, where the people weren't doing right, and they came to God and had confession, and then praised him for it. We see God's character in the Psalms as this compassionate, patient, and faithful God, who never gave up on his people. As much as we're trying to figure out how to be in God's presence, God has always given a path to be in his presence. Early in the law and the temple, and then for us through Jesus Christ. So we see his character reflected through how people responded to God in the Psalms. And that's how they point to the gospel, by showing us the hope, the promise that is to come of how we can adore God, how we can be in his presence, is because Jesus is the bridge to Emmanuel, God with us. He overcame the law, fulfilled it completely, and mended the broken bridge, that brokenness that came in the garden. Jesus gives us the path back to God's presence. So when we see praises for God in the Psalms, We can praise him that way, and he can hear us because of Jesus. And we are afforded that gift because of Jesus's life and sacrifice and raising from the dead to overcome even death. So we can see how to read the Psalms, like prayers, God's character, and the gospel, all in this book of 150 prayers. Now, there's all different types, and there are so many different resources out there for you about the Psalms, because they're widely popular. Like I said, they're on Shiplap. So if that's something that you want to dive more into, I'm going to list some resources in the show notes of some great places to go for that. But now it's time for wisdom literature. (laughs) I laugh because wisdom literature is probably some of the trickiest to read through. So wisdom literature is going to be Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, and Job. 
those three books are set aside as what we call the wisdom literature. And they're three very different books, but you need all three for the complete picture. And this is why we say the Bible is one complete story and not 66 separate books with separate stories. They're all part of the larger meta narrative. So let's talk about wisdom literature. How do we read it? So by knowing the context of any book of the Bible, that's going to help you read it better. And the context for these three books are very different than a lot of the other books. They are written in a lot of poetry. Proverbs is not narrative, and it's not really discourse. It's not one person talking to another person. The whole thing is a metaphor about a father talking to his son. Now, the problem that we run into with Proverbs is that we read them like promises when we really need to read them like principles. So if you know anybody who has had cancer or divorce or loss in their life, you will know that the Proverbs are not unilaterally true across the board. Let's look at a very popular one, which is also put on shiplap and cute little boards at Hobby Lobby. Proverbs 3, 5 and 6. Trust in the Lord with all your heart and do not lean on your own understanding. In your ways, acknowledge him and he will make straight your paths. So if I take that as a promise, then I can say to God, I acknowledge you and I trust you with all my heart. So you're going to make my life really easy, a straight path. And that's just not unilaterally true. We actually learn from crooked paths. We have growth through adversity and pain and toils. There are also several proverbs that seem to completely contradict themselves. For instance, in Proverbs 17, verse 23, it says, The wicked accepts a bribe in secret to pervert the ways of justice. But in chapter 21, verse 14, it says, A gift in secret averts anger and a concealed bribe strong wrath. So do we give bribes or not give bribes? Or maybe let's talk about being in other people's business. Proverbs twenty six seventeen says, whoever meddles in a quarrel, not his own, is like one who takes a passing dog by the ears. Yet 24 verse 11 and 12 says, rescue those who are being taken away. Hold back those who are stumbling to the slaughter. So are we supposed to get involved or not get involved? Proverbs is supposed to be taken as this metaphor that it is about wisdom given to a son. And some of those things are not unilaterally true. They're conditional. But it's saying what the best case scenario would be. Best case scenario is that the righteous do win at the end of the day, that the rich do spread their wealth, that the poor are not given into poverty their whole lives that they're able to not toil for wealth, but also be able to discern and have wisdom and that money isn't an obstacle. There's a few poetic literary devices used in Proverbs that are important to know. Parallelism is probably the most important. That's stating a truth in what may seem like an opposing example, but they actually validate one another. So the idea that you shouldn't quarrel in other people's affairs and that you should stand up for someone who's being taken to their death seem like contradictions, but actually they validate one another. 
that it is like taking a dog's ears. There will be repercussions. That standing up for someone else does not mean it's going to be easy for you. That doesn't mean that just because you're doing the right thing doesn't mean that it's not going to be hard for you. So parallelism is actually a really important literary device because it's a way of using comparing and contrasting to make a point. So I'll give you a really simple and very familiar example. When Neil Armstrong first stepped out on the moon, he said a very famous quote that is actually parallelism. One small step for man and one giant leap for mankind. So is it one step or is it a giant leap? Those things seem to contradict each other. Was this an accomplishment for one man or was it an accomplishment for all of mankind? So this is putting two ideas right next to each other that don't seem like they go together, but they actually do and they validate one another. I use this example because I think we all kind of understand the historical significance of walking on the moon. And this is a really easy way to remember what parallelism is. So if you come across two ideas in the Proverbs that seem like they go against each other, think about parallelism and then say, what is the point this is trying to make? And see if they're making actually the same point using different ideas. Proverbs is insight on a range of different topics given from someone who has experience to someone who has lesser experience. And it's kind of what it would be like to have a good life if everything did go well. And we know that it doesn't. So that's why you need the other books, Ecclesiastes and Job. So Ecclesiastes answers the question, is life meaningless? Nature will endure. Human beings will die. Good things happen to bad people and bad things happen to good people. And it's all unmanageable by human hands. We have no control. There's a phrase that comes over and over again in Ecclesiastes. Vanity, vanity. Everything is vanity. Your translation might have it as meaningless. Meaningless, meaningless. Everything is meaningless. It's repeated over 30 times throughout this very small book. So repetition tells us that that's the point, right? The Hebrew word for vanity or meaningless is actually hevel. And so when I did my study with Ecclesiastes with my group, we kind of latched onto this catchphrase of it's hevel, which means it's vapor. That's what it literally means, like smoke. You can see it, you can smell it, you can identify it, but you just can't quite hold on to it. So if Proverbs is what it should be, Ecclesiastes is telling you the reality that you can't control it, whether it's a good thing or a bad thing, because our world is broken and we never really know what's going to happen. Ecclesiastes has a couple of really big poems in it. But overall, it's stating different kind of scenarios and then what we think about those scenarios. The teacher in Ecclesiastes says, I saw this scenario happen, like everything that was built up, this one man who had success and wealth had to hand it over to a fool. It's hevel. There's nothing that you can do about it, but that's just life. And it ends with fear God and follow his commandments. Yes, you may not be able to control it all, and maybe the Proverbs don't always work out how you want to, but it's really only your job to fear God and follow his commandments. And then 
we get to Job. So if Proverbs helps us establish what would be fair, and Ecclesiastes helps us establish what isn't fair, Job answers the question, what is fair? And who gets to decide that? Job is a story where there's a man named Job who God loves, and yet he hands him over to suffering, toil, and torment. He has great loss in his life. And with the OT kind of thinking, it was bad things only happen to people if you've upset God or sinned. And so his three friends come to confront him. So between these three friends and Job, there's this discourse that goes back and forth between the friends, and they speak in large poems. And they say, well, he must have done this. And Job says, I'm innocent. And they go, okay, well, maybe he did this. And he says, I'm innocent. And the whole time he goes, I know that God is in charge. But if he would come down here and answer to me, I would sure like that because this is not fair. And what does God do? (laughs) It's amazing. He comes down and answers Job. Well, he doesn't answer him in the way that Job probably wanted. He shows Job a small glimpse of everything that God is in control of and says, I'm in charge of what's fair and what's not fair, because I know way more than you do. And so we have this question kind of answered. What does it mean to have a good life? Proverbs says, here's the best case scenario. And Ecclesiastes says, here's what reality looks like. And sometimes bad things happen. And Job says, how is that fair? And then reminds us that we're not in charge of what's fair. (laughs) And honestly, Job, when I saw it in that way, was so refreshing because if I could understand everything that God understood, he wouldn't really be a God worth giving my life to. He wouldn't be worth our lives, our children, our time, our effort, our hearts, our minds. I'm glad that I can't understand everything that God understands. But that wisdom comes from being able to look at all three books together. When we see proverbs and treat them like promises instead of principles, we're probably going to be let down. When we are in the midst of struggle and pain and we say, this isn't fair, I don't want to do this anymore, we can look at Ecclesiastes and say, it's all hevel. What does it matter? I'm not in control. And then Job helps to remind us of God's character and the promise to come that he's in charge. and he loves us. So we have a couple of really special types of poetry between the Psalms and the wisdom literature, and they're definitely worth your time. I spent a lot of time in Ecclesiastes just this last year for the first time in my life, and it was eye-opening, and it is such a deep well that I know I'm going to keep going back to. But it's not something that's really fun to preach, because he says, everything is meaningless. You really need to read the whole thing. So we've seen how to read these special types of poetry, how they reflect God's character, and how each of them, in their own special and unique way, point to the gospel. So that's poetry, and it's not anything to be afraid of. Go and read these very weird books and seek solace and comfort and praise in the Psalms.
Okay, next week, we are going to finish up poetry with prophecy and apocalyptic literature. So I myself am really just starting to scratch the surface of apocalyptic literature, and I'm really excited to share with you what I've already seen. Definitely, there's a lot of imagery and things like that, and it's kind of hard to know what to do with that. So I can't wait to kind of dive into that and show you the things that I've learned. I mean, honestly, if I can find God's character, love, and patience in something like Ecclesiastes, where everything is hevel and there's no point, (laughs) then I'm pretty sure we're going to be able to find him in prophecy and apocalypse. So let's do that next week together. I hope that this has made poetry a little bit more attainable, that you can see that God's loving character is just drenching in every single page. And it's worth looking into because he's in every single page and he's definitely worth it. And that's good news. <laughs>